0: On a cold night in January of 1982, when Hugh Herr was just 17, he and his climbing partner arrived in New Hampshire. The two accomplished teenagers wanted to ascend the ice faces of Huntington Ravine on Mount Washington, a popular destination for ambitious climbers. At more than 3,000 feet above sea level, the ice is naked and exposed to the elements, making for an extreme challenge. They camped overnight in a hut near the base, resting one final time before their ascent. They awoke the next day to a treacherous winter storm, but they pushed upwards despite the dangerous conditions. Their axes and spiked boots echoed as they chopped at the hardened ice. Wind howled ceaselessly across the frozen earth. After a few hours, the two men succeeded in climbing 800 feet to the top of the ravine. Then, huddled behind a rock face, they made the decision to continue their journey and head towards the summit. After only five minutes of hiking, they became disoriented by whiteout conditions, where two people separated by only three or four feet can no longer see each other through the repressive layers of snow and wind. The climbing partners decided to abandon the summit and descend towards safety. Blinded by the blizzard, they took the worst available route downwards through Mount Washington's Great Gulf, a massive, steeply sloping 270 degree arc of mountains. It captures snow in its basin as if by design. During their descent, they bushwhacked through unyielding tree branches and chest-level snow. In hopes of aiding their navigation, they hugged a river. On occasion, they fell in, leaving their lower legs soaking wet in negative 20 degree Fahrenheit air. The two men trudged on, but quickly began to suffer from the painful stinging of frostbite and hypothermia. Soon, they could no longer continue to walk. Four days later, Hugh and his partner were discovered by a person out snowshoeing less than two miles from a main highway. Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role that intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I'm your host, Lauren Hutchinson. I'm a historian of science and a technology reporter, and I'm fascinated by humankind's ability to innovate and advance the world we live in. On today's episode, we open up stories from the world of modern prosthetics. We'll hear about the inspirational work of a technological innovator, how scientists can truly be elegant designers, and we'll check in with one inventor whose prosthetics are changing the sound of musical performance. Each year, between 3 and 4 million people worldwide undergo amputations, leading to extreme limitations in mobility and lifestyle. In the US alone, approximately 185,000 amputations are performed each year. Hugh Herr is one of these amputees. After he and his climbing partner were rescued from Mount Washington, Herr underwent two months of medical treatment, ultimately resulting in the amputation of both his legs below the knee. While still in his hospital bed, Herr's father told him, If you want to climb, you should climb. Hugh took this advice and never looked back. Using basic machining skills, he learned from a high school vocational program. Hugh began to experiment and build his own prosthetics. Early on, he abandoned the idea of human-looking limbs, instead pursuing pure functionality. He followed this fork in the road, where we find him today, a leading innovator in the field of prosthetics and an inspiration to millions. Through his decades of focused work, Dr Hugh Herr now holds more than 30 patents relating to modern prosthetics. He has invented multiple prostheses that can mimic the movements of the natural body like none before. But amputees haven't always had such wonderful technological optionality. If you go back to early use of artificial legs, the majority were made of wood and were merely filling the space between where the limb was lost and the ground. There were no joints and they certainly weren't comfortable. But they allowed a person to be able to stand up and increase mobility to some degree. Luckily, the world of modern prosthetics has evolved in fantastic ways. Unfortunately, Hugh Herr was unable to appear in this podcast production. But luckily for our listeners, we were able to speak with Elliot Weintraub, who has years of experience with fitting amputees with many of Huher's prosthetic inventions? Elliot
1: Weintraub, I'm a certified prosthetist orthotist and I'm president of Orthotic Prosthetic Center.
0: Weintraub is in his mid 50s and has been working in the prosthetic industry for over 25 years. He lives for adventure and at 6'2, he is a naturally gifted athlete. When he was a teenager, his mother started a prosthetics business, one of the first women involved in the field. But at the time, he wasn't interested in the family business. He was passionate about racing whitewater kayaks. So passionate, in fact, that Weintraub went on to become an Olympian. Little did he know, the materials used in kayaks are the same that are used in the fabrication of prosthetics. With his mother's business as an influence, his interest in manufacturing prosthetics eventually grew and soon evolved into patient care. His excitement for the technological advancement within the prosthetic industry is clear.
1: Mechanically, the sky's the limit. We've now introduced power in some prosthetics. We have microprocessor joints. We have gyroscopes, accelerometers. So whether someone is trying to run a mile with a prosthesis, do an Ironman or run a marathon, all these things have been achieved.
0: Weintraub would know. His practice, the Orthotic Prosthetic Centre in Fairfax, Virginia, is one of the leading prosthetic centres in the country. Weintraub's centre also fits patients with two of Hugh Herr's patented inventions. One, a prosthetic knee called the Rio Knee, and the other, a fully powered ankle prosthetic called Empower. Weintraub broke down how the Rio Knee works.
1: Think of almost like a big paddle wheel on a paddle boat uh, as it moves through the water in the water. In a prosthetic knee, it's moving through a rheomagnetic fluid, and that fluid, the viscosity, can be as thin as air or thick as mud. So again, if a person is riding a bike, for example, we don't want any resistance. So that, quote, fluid is going to provide zero resistance. But if someone, again, as the example, if we were about to fall, you need things to get very thick because we want to slow everything down. So this rheomagnetic fluid has the ability to change viscosity in a split second, which makes it very safe. Really, what the Rio knee allows is perhaps a more natural motion that allows an individual to almost think a little bit less about everyday life. Because when it comes right down to it, I want to put someone in a prosthesis and I don't want them to think about it. If you have to think about every step, Every staircase, every time you make a turn, it's mentally exhausting. So at the end of the day, while you may be physically fine, you're worn out. I want to make sure that a person can put on a prosthesis, and whether they're just standing in line to get a coffee at Starbucks, or they're jumping on a bike, or they're walking down a steep hill, I don't want them to have to think about it.
0: The technology in Dr. Hur's Empower Foot is equally as impressive.
1: So, the Empower Foot, in my mind and what I've seen with patients, is a game changer. This actually puts quite a bit of pep back into their step. We have had comments such as, this is like having my own foot back. When we talk about true power in a prosthesis, we are now trying to essentially replace the musculature that is no longer there. As an individual would walk or roll over onto their toe and push off to initiate another step, we now have power in that prosthesis and the harder you push, the more power we receive in the prosthesis and whether the person is going uphill or downhill or upstairs, it is all uh, graduated power that is appropriate to one's needs. So that push-off that occurs, we are going to bring the power up until he feels symmetrical.
0: Weintraub shared with us one of his practice's biggest success stories with the use of Dr. in Empower Ankle Prosthetic. The patient was close to 80 years old, obese at 300 pounds, and a type 2 diabetic. His provider was hesitant to cover the technology. It didn't seem appropriate. Weintraub helped make a case for the technology, and the provider ultimately decided to cover the patient. Six months later, he was able to exercise and began to lose weight. Nine months after receiving the prosthesis, he was no longer diabetic no longer insulin dependent, and he lost 100 pounds.
1: It was fantastic. That technology allowed him to have an exercise program. He didn't have the fitness early on to exercise that well on his own. So he's now 100 pounds lighter. He's no longer diabetic. His joints aren't wearing out. His quality of life has gone through the roof.
0: While Elliot Weintraub has the experience of fitting patients with Hugh Herr's inventions and intimately witnessing their improvements, our next guest helps us look at Hugh Herr's work from a much different perspective. Her name is Paola Antonelli.
2: I'm Paola Antonelli. I'm a Senior Curator of Architecture and Design and Director of R&D for the Museum of Modern
0: Art. Antonelli took a break from her curatorial duties to join us by telephone from the Museum of Modern Art's offices in Midtown Manhattan. Through her work, she finds great design in unexpected places, like in Hugh Her's ankle prosthetic, The Empower. Design
2: is fundamental for innovation because scientists create revolutionary concepts, but designers are the ones that make them into life. And in the case of Hugh and also many other scientists, they might not know that they're designers yet, but they were happy to know. These are the scientists that take the further step and try to connect their research with life. In the case of Hugh, it couldn't be more connected since it was his own experience that came into play. But what was important about the prosthetic ankle is that it was meant to create a more natural gait. So it was really meant to, be, to make life real and possible for a double or a, or a single amputee.
0: Her work as a curator wonderful things came head-to-head with Hugh Her when she organized an exhibit called Design and the Elastic Mind. That
2: exhibition was an attempt to crash together designers and scientists and see what would happen. And, uh, Hugh Her was part of this exhibition as were many other scientists from all over the world. It was an amazing experience to see them work together with designers and to really be happy to be in the same room, their work celebrated in an art museum as design. One of the salons that we had leading up to Design and the Elastic Mind was really funny. It was about beauty. And one of the questions that was on the table was, why are scientists always choosing the ugliest backgrounds in the PowerPoints and the horriblest typefaces? And the scientists responded that they were afraid of being too elegant and not being taken seriously. Now, this is anecdotal and it's funny, but it's the truth. It took a while for the science community to be comfortable with formal elegance. And, you know, in Design and Elastic Mind, there was a lot of it. Uh, Hugh Hearth's ankle, prosthetic ankle, was in the exhibition. And it was very clear that formal elegance was a plus, not a minus.
0: Resting on the floor is a flat, black, rounded sole, like you would see on a thick sandal. Above that lies a symphony of pistons, rods and joints. Most are silver, but some are royal blue or red. They're held together by tiny bolts and small curved sheets of metal and composite materials. The top is a matte silver block where an ankle would normally connect to the leg. The result is a machine that could delight an auto mechanic or inspire a patron of Renaissance art. Antonelli has thought deeply about how to ensure that these technological advancements continue to evolve in harmonious and effective ways. She left us with a revision to the popular STEM acronym, standing for Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics a revision which young inventors and their teachers could take to heart.
2: Everybody knows about STEM education. Um, then uh, John Mayda made it into STEAM. So it was science, technology, engineering, math, and he added art. And I now add STEAMed. I add the D at the end of design. It cannot be only science, technology, engineering, math, and art. Design is what is the enzyme that makes innovation become life.
0: Innovations with prosthetics are beginning to allow people to move from being disabled to extra-abled. Professor Gil Weinberg is a perfect example of someone who is pushing the limits of what ability means.
3: I'm Gil Weinberg. I'm a professor and director of Georgia Tech Center for Music Technology.
0: Weinberg Center for Music Technology in Atlanta, Georgia, serves as a meeting place for engineers, roboticists, and musicians to interact and innovate together. Before his recent prosthetic device innovations, He has famously invented robots who can listen, think, react and play improvised music with humans. He started with robotic percussionists and now has a fully functioning robot that plays marimba named Shimon. Shimon is so musically capable that she and Weinberg formed a band. They even have an international gigging schedule. Here's what Shimon sounds like while improvising with Weinberg on piano. Weinberg's extraordinary advancements make perfect sense when you consider what his early cross-disciplinary musings were.
3: In the first years when I went to college, I tried to write software that listens to me playing uh, piano and play back at me and hopefully surprise me, maybe even inspire me to play differently. Uh, It's not that I didn't like to play with humans. Humans are awesome. But I was trying to push the envelope. I was trying to see if uh, the software that I can write would bring new ideas
0: So how did a jazz pianist slash computer scientist come to building robots?
3: People say you learn from your students. In my case, it was completely true. I had no experience in robotics or in mechanical engineering at all. And I just brought students here who started to develop robots. Uh, The reason was that I was interested to take some of the research that I was doing at MIT and move it into the acoustic world. Uh, and the only thing that actually can have this kind of digital brain with all kinds of interesting algorithms that can listen and surprise and inspire and create uh, music that you would not hear uh, from humans with the acoustic sounds is robots.
0: Then Fate intervened when Weinberg was contacted by his future collaborator.
3: And then about f- six years ago, I received a phone call for someone who said, I, I know a drummer who lost his arm in, in an accident. And we both looked online and we saw your robots playing music and we were looking for a robotic arm for him that can play music.
0: Jason Barnes lost his arm in an accident while working with electrical power lines. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, was electrocuted and woke up to a very different world. To most drummers, losing an arm would seem to be a death sentence for their musicianship. Fortunately for us, Barnes had seemingly endless determination.
3: The main thing that the amputee drummer, his name is Jason Barnes, wanted was to recreate his wrist. He was ampu- uh, amputated under the elbow. And for drummers, it's very important to be able to control how tight the stick is being held and do all kind of expressive manipulation with the wrist. So while he could, and he actually he did, put a stick uh, w- with some kind of a masking tape uh, to his stamp and was able to place uh, some basic uh, rhythms in music, he didn't have the expression that he wanted. And I said, sure, let's meet. And when I met him, uh, it was really fascinating to see how eager he was to continue and play and get the expression. And the first thing I I told him, sure, uh, we are going to build you a wrist. That should be something simple. You just put some electrodes on the muscle that you still have on your forearm, and based on how tight they are and the electric spikes that come from the muscle, we can have some kind of a grip that will change and will bring you back the expressivity.
0: Weinberg and his team of engineers built Barnes a new prosthetic that held and controlled his drumstick. He could play again, but of course... Weinberg had so much more he wanted to try.
3: But then I asked him, how about you work with us on some of the areas that I'm interested in, which is robotic creativity.
0: Barnes agreed and they got to work. Weinberg added a second drumstick to the prosthetic, but this stick listened to a robot's mind. It was a new member of the musical ensemble, one that Jason would need to collaborate with instead of control.
3: And it was fascinating to see how first, you know, the music really and uh, suffered because he did not know what to do with it but how slowly within a month or two he was able to create all kind of great music that he was never be able uh, he was never able to create before that A big element of what the arm is doing, which we call play like a machine, is not only that the algorithms are different than how humans play, but actually the mechanical abilities are enhanced in a way that uh, completely change how the music sounds like. Each one of the sticks can play 20 hertz. So it means that each one of the sticks can play 20 hits per second. And together they can create 40 hertz, meaning 40 hits per second. Uh, and at some point, it actually sounds like a new timbre, a new, a new kind of color of sound, because it's so fast that you don't even hear the hits. But uh, this is an important element that the robots not only think differently than human, but also has mechanical capabilities that humans don't have. I know, and w- we are in Atlanta, uh, the capital of uh, of trap, and. Uh, I have a lot of trap musicians interested, you know, obviously, that the very fast hi-hat is is a a signature of this genre. And so I think we are here the right place in Atlanta in the right time.
0: Now Weinberg has reached the point where you begin to think. Have we turned disability into extra ability? Uh,
3: For example, think about uh, running. Oscar Pesteros, for example, lost his uh, his leg and was able to compete in the Olympics with, with his leg in the regular Olympics. I think very soon, based on technologies that will develop around us, people like that may not be able to compete anymore uh, with humans that are able-bodied. Not because it's not fair because they are not as able, but because it will not be fair because they are more able than them. And I think the same thing with uh, music. Soon uh, you, you'll see more and more musicians interested in this kind of technology that will allow them to create this music that currently only few people who are disabled and uh, working with augmented technology are able to do.
0: Soon after Jason regained his ability to play drums, Weinberg and team set out to build Jason Barnes a second prosthetic. With this artificial hand, Barnes can control the individual fingers himself for the purposes of playing piano.
3: Yes, we call it the Skywalker p- piano hand. And we went to the M J and I tried it because we didn't have an I O B, so I tried it on myself. It doesn't hurt. It's just like ac- acupuncture.
0: This is where Weinberg had a definitive moment of discovery. Many of today's modern prosthetics use EMG technology to listen to the intentions of the amputee's remaining muscles. These electrical signals can give the prosthetic information coming from the mind of the amputee themselves, but sometimes these signals are difficult to pass and understand. Weinberg was experiencing trouble and needed to get more precise. He and a few team members headed to a different lab at Georgia Tech to use an ultrasound machine.
3: And in order to know exactly where to put the needles, there was an ultrasound machine next to us and we wanted to look at the muscle to see where to put the needles. And I put the ultrasound machine on on my muscle and after 30 seconds, there was a huge eureka from everyone around us and those were like three or four people, students and other professors. Because we realized we just don't need EMG anymore because the ultrasound showed that when I flex one finger, maybe the thumb, the muscle is moving in a different direction than when I flex the pinky. And when I do other uh, combination of muscle, we could see, we couldn't exactly know uh, uh, what is the correlation, but we saw that there's direct correlation between what finger you move and how much you move it and how the muscles move.
0: This accidental discovery proved to be a huge breakthrough for their ambitious piano-playing prosthetic.
3: We were able to create prosthetic arms that plays finger by finger and piano is uh, a great uh, instrument to try that and that was the first time uh, we have some videos too uh, where Jason was training it for maybe 5 minutes uh, with his muscle information put the prosthetic arms that we uh, bought for him and was able to play odd to joy and that was a very joyous moment
0: this process is certainly slow and their progress is dependent on Barnes and Weinberg's strong determination The music sounds elementary, but hidden deep within these simple musical expressions might be critical progress for all amputees, whether they're musicians or not. Weinberg explains his approach.
3: If it works with music, if you can capture the expressions that music has, it would work in any other scenarios. Because music is such a media that is really demanding in terms of timing and location. If you play two hits and they're not just on the same millisecond, our ear will hear it. So if I can create the kind of mechanics that will allow you to be expressive in music and that will allow you to play a piano and forte, then this can be used by any, in this case, amputee for any daily activities. And you can, you know, tie a button or or, or bathe or, or... or groom or, or all of the delicate dexterous requirements, if I can make it in music, it will be easy to address uh, requirements that are not as expressive because music is probably one of the most expressive human uh, experiences.
0: Weinberg is busy and continues to push forward as an inventor of important technologies that add to the growing world of modern prosthetics.
3: Patents that were granted, I have uh, three, but we have multiple patent uh, applications that are in the process.
0: His musical background provides the foundation for his inventiveness.
3: And I think a big element of the invention process for me is happy mistakes. Just like in jazz jazz you have a lot of improvisation but the improvisation within structure so you you need to have the structure uh, and you need you need to have the rigor to actually take this kind of eureka moment and happy mistake moments and finalize it into a working pattern so uh, i i really take jazz as as an inspiration for my work in technology uh, how to bring together uh, improvisation and exploration into a structure and when it is too structured when it is too improvised that's that's something that you just have to feel uh, on the go
0: it's easy to think of an inventor as a singular hero, one who works alone in a lab until they have a moment of inspiration that they can then share with others. And maybe sometimes that's true, but each of our guests on this episode see things quite differently. In a field like prosthetics that is so intimately tied to the collaboration between the amputee and practitioner, it's no wonder that Gil Weinberg, Elliot Weintraub, and Paola Antonelli echoed nearly identical sentiments towards teamwork and thinking outside of their specific disciplines. They offered the following words of wisdom to our listeners.
3: Uh, So try to find collaborators. Try to identify very quickly what you maybe not as good as as you would like and try to find someone else that can complement your skill and try to work with them together and (laughs) give them credit uh, when when you have success.
1: It's fair to say that as an industry, we have done a very good job stealing technology from others, especially the aerospace industry. Who cares where we get it from? The fact is that we can apply it and make it, uh, applicable to the individual user.
2: I myself, I always, I cannot work um, alone because it's always by bouncing ideas and also trying to find in your team people that know things that you don't know and sometimes, often, I mean, you should always do it, people that are better than you. Um, it's where you get the best work done. So you might have a great idea in your mind, but ideas can be a dollar a pound it's making them happen that is really tough and you cannot make them happen without having a connection with the outside world and a collaboration with other people
0: thanks to elliot weintraub paula antonelli and dr gil weinberg and to all the innovators and inventors listening out there i'm lauren hutchinson and thanks for tuning in to this episode of stroke of genius please rate and review us on the apple podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.